0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. This class um, is Nishmat Bat Before we actually uh, begin, uh, being that we spoke about scientific situations and people and evidence in the past few classes, I got some interesting responses. One of the responses was um, that I am trying to ridicule science, I'm bringing science down, um, it's disrespectful for the scientific community, so... Let's just clarify it I, Chas V'Shalom, do not intend or want Or need to bring any scientific person, evidence or community down That is not the intent of these classes Rather, I have tremendous respect for them As they make my life a lot easier They make the ability, first of all, to transfer Torah to, throughout the entire world They make so much stuff in our world So much more significantly easier, better and uh, more enjoyable So, Chas V'Shalom, that I should say anything against them Anything, you know, bad I respect them, and I thank them for all their hard work and service. The reason why we went, and we went through these types of, uh, you know, scenarios that may seem as we're downplaying certain scientific evidences, and it's really not the scientific evidences, but rather more the theories, was in essence because the... The society that we live in today holds the scientific world as like, kodesh kodashim. This is like the holiest of the holiest. If science says this, like forget it. Science doesn't even have to say it. Uh, it could even be like the Mishpacha magazine where it writes about it, you know, from like, you know, it could be somebody who once read a psychology book, is all of a sudden I'm a psychologist, and you know, they read, you know, it might be a good idea to speak to your kids every other night so then they'll want to speak more to you, or whatever, like some, something like that. It's scientific, now everyone's gonna start doing it. So we hold scientific in a very high pedestal. The problem with that is that I have is that it's... The one thing that's unchanging is the Torah. The one thing that's constantly changing is science. So, if you're trying to compare the two, you rather focus on the Torah, which is unchanging, and then compare it against the science, not vice versa. So that was the essence of why I was going on. If it sounds like I was bashing, I'm, you know, I apologize. I don't know if anybody got offended with the, the so close scientific community, and they're listening to my classes. That's really unbelievable. So I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry that I offended you, but I'm honored that they're actually listening to these um, to these classes. Okay, so now let's begin with uh, today's class. Today's topic and um, is is. Well, let's even back it up a little bit. The, we spoke we What is this? It's the fifth, uh, fifth class, I think, in this series. So, the beforehand, we sort of tried to prove that there's a God. And we gave some uh, you know, uh, different uh, types of evidence, proof, theories of why there is very likely that there's a God. Now we have to tackle another issue. And that other issue is, who said God still cares about the world? Let's say he just created the world. He did a good job. It's sort of the watchmaker theory. The watchmaker made the watch and then he went bye-bye. He didn't stay with the watch and, and whisper to it, tick, 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 every few seconds, because it just does it by itself. So maybe this is what God did. He created the world, created a magnificent world, a beautiful world, of such a perfect world that he doesn't even have to be involved in it. Everything goes as nature, and God doesn't care, no one wants to. Some people say he cannot change anything. So... We should leave it as, as, uh, th- that's the world, and God takes his, you know, took, you know, went on to his next project. He was bored for six days, he did something for six days, rested on the seventh, one, then moved on to his next project. This idea is known as deism. That, um, which is thanks to you, I, we, we're bringing this in there. So, the problem that we have with this is, if God is not in control of the universe, and the universe just runs by itself, that means that there's no purpose. Like, what is the purpose? So, so we were sort of an experiment, now you know we're like bored, and then you know it's like whatever. It's like you know it's still just going on until it just dies out, till the juice runs out, till the battery runs out, and then we finish. No one. It, it just defeats the entire purpose of uh, creation. The so we're going to look at it and we consider it as a completely different scenario. We say that the Judaism states that not only God created the world, but He actually continues to run it. He continues to 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 play a very very important and. Uh, a much-needed role in the, in the whole creation as we know it today. The, that is w- so one thing that we're going to try to prove is how do we know that God still plays control in, in, in this universe, in this world. And we're going to do that through Jewish history. We're going to also look... We're going to hit two birds with one stone over here. We're going to also be able to prove... And this is... We're sort of jumping the gun a little bit... Because as we're moving forward, we want to know and be able to prove, is the Torah divine? Because if we could say that we prove th- that there's a God who said that the Torah is divine. So we're sort of going to tackle both of these today, uh but we're going to actually go in more in depth in the, in the uh, coming classes as well So the, you know, imagine some person walks up to you in the street and he's uh, you know, scratching himself very hard and he's like hey 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 hey. Hey, you got some crack? You got what? And you're like, "What?" And be like, Well, I didn't say anything. What do you what do you want? So he goes to you and he's like, uh you got five dollars? Five dollars, you have five dollars? You five six dollars, you have seven dollars, you have five dollars, you have five dollars? And uh you know, then you see him like glancing from black, he's like listen, 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 you listening? Listen. Come closer, come closer. Uh, oh, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something no one knows. You have five dollars? And he's keep on, you know, he's scratching himself. He's, you know, he's constantly doing this. He's checking his gums to make sure that everything's okay. He's looking back and forth. And all of a sudden, he's like, uh, he's like, he's like, oh, you know what? You know, they bargain. They bargain with themselves. These people, you don't have to talk anything. They're going to bargain. So, like, no, no, five dollars, four dollars, you got four dollars, three dollars, one dollar. Just give me one dollar. I'll tell you something that's going to change your life. I tell you, I'm telling you. I'm... Are you, just, are you listening to me? Focus, 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 focus. I'll tell you. Just give me the, give me the money. Give me the money. I'll tell you something that change. You're not a cop, are you? Okay, just make sure you're not a cop. All right, you give him the dollar just to get him to go away. And then he's like. Um, and, he's, and then he looks back and forth, back and forth. He's like, "Listen, I haven't eaten since I was six years old. I was living on water and like carrots." Oh, you know, can you, can you give me another dollar? You know, and, he, and you're like, "Okay, fine." You know what? Here's another dollar. It is. And he's like, and then he looks around again, back and forth, and he's like, "You sure you're not a cop, right?" He's like, yeah, I'm positive. I'm not a cop." You know, like, you know, here's a dollar. Just please. And he's like, "No, no, no I'm going to tell you. I'm a man. I'm a man of my word. I'm going to tell you." I said, "I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you." He says he listen? To me? And then he goes and he says, uh, "You see these four trees over here?" And you're like, "Yeah." And he's like. These are not trees. He's like, these are, these are, these are like magical people that have really long ears and they're listening to everything that we're saying. And in three minutes from now, they're gonna, they're gonna transform themselves out of the trees and they're gonna tap this car and they're gonna jump into outer space. And then he skips off, you know, sinking, I don't know, follow the Elbrook Road. And that was the end of that story. Now, you're sitting over there and you start laughing. And you're like, and then as you're starting to laugh, You're like, why am I laughing? I'm a terrible person. This person obviously needs, you know, has some issues. Why am I laughing at him? And then you're thinking, well, you know, I gave him two dollars, so am I that bad of a person? And while you're contemplating how bad of a person you are, maybe you're a good person, all of a sudden these four trees, like, transform themselves into like these, like, magical creatures with long ears, and they walk around, they touch the cart, and they jump into outer space. Now you're sitting over there, and assuming you didn't you know, touch any of his medicinal you know, activities that he was dealing with, you're completely sober and everything's okay, what are you going to think at that moment? You're going to look for that guy and says, like, tell me some stocks. Or, you know, this guy knows something that other people you know, didn't know. So the idea with prophecy, of telling the future is really dependent on how extreme and specific that the future is. If I were to come to you today and I would say, listen, in about five years' time, there's going to be a war in the Middle East. Within five years, there's going to be a war in the Middle East. It's going to get ugly. Am I a prophet if it happens? No, because it's very likely that this is what's going to happen, unfortunately. If I were to tell you that in, like, 15 years time, they're going to create drones that, and they're going to commercialize these drones that they're going to be able to transport people. It's going to be, Uber is going to invest millions of billions of dollars into this and that's it. There's, it's going to be unmanned you know, vehicles that are going to fly you to destination. <coughs> and you know, they can make it speak to you, so you can give it ratings on the, you know, how good was the conversation, everything. They'll have people speaking from India, you know, hello, thank you for flying with a drone, how can I talk to you? You know, They'll do the whole situation, replay the whole thing. And if it happens, does that mean that I am a prophet? Not necessarily. Necessarily, but if I were to tell you something that is very specific or very impossible, and it does happen, then you're starting to think, okay, maybe this is on to something. It was prophesied in the Torah in Malachi, chapter three, verse six, it says that for the Lord for I the Lord have not changed. And you, the sons of Yaakov, Jacob, will never be wiped out. It's prophesied already in the Torah that the Jewish nation will never ever be wiped out. They will always exist forever and ever. And we have this again in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. Uh, this is going to be, you know, I'm going to make you a Brit le Dorot Olam, the Brit Olam, forever. I'm going to give you a covenant forever. Which means is, we're not going anywhere. We're staying, you know, till the end of time. It's going to be us and the cockroaches. Whatever it is, we're going, we're going to the end. The... Idea behind this is nice and dandy. And and I want you to think about it as if I'm trying to sell you a religion. I'm trying to sell you this religion. I'll be like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be around forever. Don't worry about it. We're going to stay on to the end of time. Then, that would make sense if, let's say, you deal with something like, for example, Japan. Japan is in Japan, and it's always been in Japan. So it could be there for many, many, many years, and there's no issue with that. The problem is that the Torah itself tells... That the Jewish people will be exiled, will be scattered throughout the entire world. You look at uh, Deuteronomy, Dvarim, chapter 4, verse 27, and God will scatter you among the people. And this is repeated again in Vaika, Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 33, and again repeated in Dvarim, chapter 28, verse 64. Again and again, that I'm gonna scatter you around the, you know, all the nations of the world. Yet, still saying that, you're telling me I'm going to scatter you throughout the entire nation of the world, and yet you're still going to be here forever. That's something that's a little bit conflicting, because once you're telling me that you're scattering me around the world, it's, show, it's going to reduce my chance of survival. We know there's idea of survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest means that you will survive if you are the strongest. Now, if you take people and you sprinkle them all over the world, the chances that they're going to survive is going to be very slim. They might survive, but they'll assimilate. They'll become one of whatever nation they are a part of. So... When we're going to look at this, we see that not only we still existing, but the Torah prophesies already that where we would be, and that we would be far away, and yet still, beyond any reasonable doubt, we are still existing. And you look at the, you know, the Jewish survival. You look even, even back to Egypt, Mitzrayim. The historians are at loss. They don't know how to explain how the Jews got out of Egypt. The, the you know, and the archaeologists go and they say, you know, it's natural disasters, and all these things, the Makot, everything was just, you know, happened to work out just so perfectly for the Jewish people. They were in the right place at the right time. The um, Even though the, there was an Ipawar papyrus that was um, acquired by the Museum of Leiden at 1828 that contains eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses report of the Makot, of the ten plagues that contains it. So it's not like something like, you know, It just happened way long ago, and you know, it's like some sort of fairy tale that, you know, the, the, you know, the grandpa's telling the kids, like, many moons ago, you know, we were in Egypt, and the whole place was followed with frogs. And the whole place turned into blood, and the whole place was followed with rice. This is actually the eyewitness, uh, report that, that happened. And there's other, there's, there's statues in the El Arish town near the, the border between Egypt and Israel, also speaks about similar reports as this. So, the fact that we got out is, because you realize it's not like America Or you know there's going to be a wall It's going to be a very strict wall You know of course Mexico doesn't pay for it Well you wouldn't have to worry about that Mexico paid for the wall So in Egypt And the you know the idea behind us escaping Egypt Is not just like a very secure place It was secured by black magic So it's not like you know like the guards were sleeping It was like unnatural security It doesn't make any sense how we were able to No slave ever ex- escaped Egypt There were so many precautions yet we were escaped No one knows how the, Besides that where did we escape to? The wilderness, the desert, for 40 years, with a little bit of matzos. you know, like, we're, we, how did we survive that? Besides that, there were, like, desert kings, nomads, that would, think of it as pirates, um, minus the ships, they might have ships if they're smoking certain things, but let's say they didn't do that, they were just, you know, in the, in the desert, what would they, you know, they see a group of people, they're going to go and attack but yet, see, this, not only they survived, they survived for 40 years. 40 years? How do you explain a nation going into the desert for 40 years and then coming out the other side, you know, 40 years later, all healthy, you know, strong, powerful, and even, you know, greater in number? The, you know, once we got into Israel, we were in Israel for quite some time until Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the first temple. And once he destroyed the first temple, he scattered the, scattered the Jews in the nearby, uh, you know, surrounding areas. For all intents and purposes, this should have been the end of Jewish history. That, that should have been the end. Once they captured, they sent us every, I mean, we would have still existed as human beings, but not as Jews. We would have existed as whatever we would have, wherever we would have ended up in. The question gets a little bit stronger is 70 years later, we get back to the land and we rebuild the temple. Now, this is the first time in recorded history that a nation got expelled from its land and then later, came back and, and recaptured it and, you know, had it, uh, you know, became, you know, back to what it was in its original um, glory. After that, they we followed by the Greek occupation, followed by the Rome, who destroyed the second temple, and then scattered us also around uh, around the globe. And when you're looking at between the year 250 common Era of 1948, when the Jewish state was uh, came into existence, the Jews were expelled from 80 countries, from more than 80 countries. That means on average... The Jews got kicked out of their countries every 22 years. That does not spell a, a you know, a recipe for like survival. That's not survival of the fittest. Every 22 years, of course, we were doing the average. Some of them was longer, some of them was shorter. That we got kicked out in numerous places. Every single place that we went to, we got kicked out. There's a reason why we're in America because. Russia wasn't, you know, working out so well for us. Azerbaijan, you know, eh, know, all the the different places that it just, you know, we kept on moving and moving and moving and moving and moving. If you keep on moving, you're not able to settle. You're not able to survive. How how are you able not only to survive, but like survive strong? The Jewish nation is strong. Then you had the Christian Crusades at the year uh, 1095 to 1348. Then there was the Black Plague, which happened between 1347 and 1350. Guess who the church blamed for it? Of course, the Jews were the problem for this, uh, you know, we brought the bubonic Plague somehow. And uh, thousands of Jewish communities were massacred because of that. Then the Jews fled to Spain, but that didn't work out too well because then we had the Spanish Acquisition. Either you had mass conversions or mass uh, uh, mass uh, murder with with that. Then you go 1648, you have Tachvetat. You have a third of Polish Jewry was completely annihilated during that time. Throughout the years, the Jews were constantly targeted for anti-Semitism, you know, murder, rape, everything bad. That's what the Jews were the target for. 1915, Grand Duke Nicholas, the commander-in-chief of the Russian army, had 100,000 Jews murdered in deportations. In 1917, this is not that long ago, the Ukrainians had massacred 200,000 Jews in almost 500 pogroms. The Holocaust, we lost 6 million Jews. In 1948, came the first time in recorded history... That the people that were once kicked out of their land, regained the land, now regained it twice. We got kicked out twice out of the land, and now we got it back. And then became the state of Israel. This makes no sense. When you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. You look at historians, to explain this, and they can't explain it. They it. According to the normal natural law of history, it does not make sense. We should not be here. We should not have Israel. We should not have anything we should be in extinct, and not even more so, the, the, in the Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 27. It says that the Jews will remain few in the number amongst the nations. Now this is also, maybe we'll, if we have time we'll try to explain it, but it says we're going to be as much as the stars in the sand. We'll see if we have time later, we can answer that. But um, it, says, it says that we are few amongst the nations. Now, we started about the same time as the Chinese. The Chinese, the Asians, have a very, very large population. They're well over a billion. We are roughly about 14 million. If we started at the same time, we should at least be a half a billion. 500 million. At least that's sort of what our number should be. However, the Torah says, before we all got kicked out of all of Israel and got into all our exiles, the Torah said you're going to be, I'm going you're gonna be in an exile and you're gonna be few. Now, this is a very big problem because we have a mitzvah, and that mitzvah is pur We have to be fruitful and multiply. This is why you see a lot of Jews have a lot of kids, right? Ranging anywhere from 5 to 25. That is the ad, depending where you live. We have a lot of kids. Now, if we have a lot of kids, and we've been around for so long, then where are we? Why are we only still few? We should be... You can look at it at the flip side. Either we should be extinct, or we should be a half a billion, or more. It makes no sense that we're exactly what the Torah said that we'll be. We'll be scattered. We're still going to be around, but there's not going to be a lot. The... You know, anti-Semitism was a. Um, first of all, if you look at the definition of anti-Semitism, it's the hostility or prejudice against Jews. It's specifically catered towards Jews. If you um, don't like a black person, you hate a black person. I know, I'm being careful. Relax. Um, I know we can get we could get a little bit of, you know edgy of You you have a big hatred and and you do stuff to you know against black people. What are you called? Racist. Racist very good. You hate Asians. What are you called? Racist. Racist. You hate Polish people. What are you called? You hate Uzbekistans, right? We know that's a sore topic for the um, Russian community. Uh, you, you know, what are you called? Racist. You hate a Jew, what is it called? Anti-Semitism. We have our own word, right? We, there's like an own, we're a separate category. We have everybody else's racism, anti-Semitism is special for the Jews. You know, genocide was only came, you know, you know who, who coined the, the term uh, genocide? It was a lawyer um, by the name of Raphael, Raphael Lemkin. He was a, you know, Polish Jew, and he, you know, this, this really came after World War II. After the, the Holocaust, they were like, what's a good word for, like, genocide, mass destruction? Well, they didn't say genocide then. And he tore you know, obviously he used the Latin words and he put it together, but this came after World War II. This came into being. So, you know, besides chutzpah, we have a few other words in the dictionary, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, thanks to uh, thanks to us. Because, yeah, that made into the dictionary also. <laughs> there are four things in when you're dealing with anti-Semitism. First of all, it's universal. Everywhere you go, the Jews were expelled literally from everywhere. So everywhere, it's, it's universal, you hate the Jew. You might not know it yet, yeah, but generally, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's people in that society, in that re- region that very, have a very much and strong dislike for the Jew. There's also the intensity of hatred. The intensity of hatred, we could just say one word and that just deals, closes the whole story, is the Holocaust. Shows you the intensity of the hatred against the Jew. The longe- longevity of it. How long has this been going on? This is since the Greek, basically since we started. Since we came into being as a nation, there was hatred against the Jewish people. The, you know, just a, you know, a short list of, you know, the hatred that we have. We had the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek, the Roman, the Byzantine, the Spanish, the Ottoman, the British, the Austro-Hungary, the German, the French, the Russia, the Soviet, the Nazi, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, so, the, it's not only that we've been hated by for so long, so hard, but it's also been from everybody, from all angles. And the fact is when you look at the, the anti-Semitic um, you know reasons behind it, it's so irrational and it conflicts with each other. The oldest example in the book is the you know the you know the Jews took the you know they killed the Christian baby because they need to drink the blood for the four cups of wine. We're not allowed to drink blood. Like, we can't. Like, we, you know, as much as we would love to drink blood, I, I, again, I don't know where this came into being. Like, how did this even come up? Who was the first person that was like, you know what, wine, blood, same thing. You know what, they're eating, you know, children. I, like, I don't know the, how it came into that, but it's so... You know, they'll, they'll complain. The Jews, you know, they, uh, um, you know, they're too wealthy to control everything. The Jews are too lazy and taking all the benefits. The Jews, uh, you know, they do too much and do too little. They take our jobs they are too lazy. They're, it's always conflicting, and it's the same people. Why do you hate the Jews? It doesn't matter. It's irrational. They're just gonna hate the Jews. It's like, you know, like, there's some people that you just hate their face. It doesn't matter what they're gonna say. I just don't like you. It's very bad. It's, it's a terrible thing. But, you know, there's some people that they come to me and that, you know, they have, I don't know, relationships and whatever. Other issues. And they they just don't like one person. I'm like, why? You know, they can't even... The face, the, I don't know, the personality, it's just, ugh, you know, it's everything. Ugh. You know, like, that is terrible. I'm like, that, that's like that's like racism on the highest possible level, you know, directed at one person. Like, you're hating someone for absolutely no reason. But unfortunately, we all know somebody, they come into the room, they're like, oh man, this person here... You know, Hi, how are you? Everything's amazing. Yeah, oh, yeah I miss you so much. Um... More women do that than men, but whatever. Um, the idea is that you have constantly this irrational hatred towards a Jew. And not only that, it's actually mentioned in the Torah. In varim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 65. It says, And among those nations you will not be calm, nor will your foot find rest. It's basically telling us, you know, God's telling us that, um, you know... You don't listen to me, you're gonna go into exile, and your exile's not gonna be fun. No one's gonna like you, everyone's gonna hate you, and you're not gonna find any rest in there. Who wants to join this nation? Huh? Anybody wanna come? Like, it, would any sane person who's creating this Torah, assuming that there's no God, say, like, yeah, why don't you come join us, and what happens if you don't listen to me? I will scatter you amongst all the nations, you will go into exile, and you will suffer bitterly, and you'll go from place to place, you'll never be settled, you'll never be happy, but it's good times also, it's good times also, we have Shabbat, you know, it's really nice, um, you could eat constipation food, I and then mean, matzah food, on, you know, a few times a week, and then, you know, Know, just to cleanse yourself, you know, or to compl- you know, collect everything. you know, the, it's gonna be great. Then we could live outside for about a week. You know, it's cold. Don't worry about it. Um, you can wear coats. It's okay. Uh, you know, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be. How is this like? This is not a way to start a religion. If you're starting a fake religion, if you're starting a fake religion, you make everything nice and dandy. You want to sell a product. You're don't gonna. You're not gonna. You know, tell people, the battery is terrible. The camera is awful. But uh, the cold quality. Uh, you know, whatever. You know. And it's just a remote. It's not even a phone call. Who knows what they're talking about? But you know, you you they, you sell something. You want something to be able to be. You just tell the good parts. But yet over here, the Torah brings um, you know everything in it. You look at it. You look at the state of Israel. The state of Israel, you know, when it when it came in, it's an inception at 1948. The population was 600,000. The first five years, it doubled in its population. It 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 absorbed 600,000 immigrants which is the largest immigrant-absorbing nation on the earth. And then on, ne- on May 1948, the, you know, when the modern state of Israel declared its independence, five Arab armies decided they're going to attack Israel. They're going to attack Israel. And I really should have brought a picture. I, I have a picture, but it's not a good one. Israel is very small. It's a tiny little strip of land. And it's surrounded by not-so-friendly people. Well, maybe they're friendly. To- no, they're not friendly. Um, not-so-friendly people that want nothing else but to annihilate Israel. So, it's, they're completely closed off. And then they decide that they're going to, to wage war against them. And in fact, the Secretary General of the Arab League said this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre. They didn't come in saying, we'll take them, we'll get some slaves, we're gonna, it's gonna be nice, you know, we'll kick them back. No, they wanted pure blood. That's it. They wanted to destroy, wipe Israel off the, off the map. And Israel should not have stand, stood a chance. And really shouldn't have. You have, you know, you're, Assuming, you know, like, you're in public school, cause obviously this doesn't happen in Yeshiva, let's hope. You have a bunch of kids gang up on one kid to beat them up. And, you know, so you have a bunch of, you know, refrigerator style people, you know, going up over there, you know, ones that eat steroids for breakfast. And, they come in there, they put this kid, this kid is, you know, the little, you know, spaceship maker, you know, he's got his big glasses, pocket protectors, the whole thing, the asthma in you know, thing, in the whole he's like, you know, ah, you know, the whole, the whole situation, he's getting attacked by these, you know, football players. And he's just, they're just like pushing him around. Does he stand a t- chance? Unless he took Krav Maga for like 10 years, then very likely no. And even if he did, they could probably just hold him and he'll just be like, you know, one of those people trying to swing in the, in the, in the ear. You have here Israel. You have here 600,000 people in Israel against the surrounding about 50 million Arabs. Now, mind you, the um, you know, when... when The Jews were in Israel before it was announced as an independent state. While they were in there, it was controlled by the British. Now, the Jewish people did not have the ability to obtain arms or practice or, you know, start military, you know, procedures. They weren't allowed to do that. Oh, so you're looking at, they just got into a nation, and now they have to uh, fight against five armies. Five armies, many of them, each numerous, more times bigger than each of their own. So who is fighting in these armies? You have a bunch of Holocaust survivors. Now... You know, you've seen pictures of the Holocaust survivors. You know, they weren't working out for like four hours a day, you know, practicing their, you know, the aim. And these are not military-trained people. You had about 45,000 soldiers in this war from the Jewish side. You had a few thousands, a few tens of thousands of of rifles that you're dealing with over here. Against all this, not only did the Jews win the war, but they got 21% more land. How do you explain that? How do you, in, in, in the right mindset, where like, you know... In my mind, I'm like already picturing like the Arab nations were probably, okay, when we do this, we're going to divide it this way. I'm going to get this line. They're already dividing the spoils up. It wasn't even a war. It shouldn't have even started to begin with. And yet the Jews won. 19 years later, 1967... Uh, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon and Jordan which by the way is everything that touches Israel went and they decided that it's time to annihilate the Jewish state you know take two and they were equipped with 3 billion dollars of military aid from the Soviet Union and they were all backed up by Iraq, Algeria, Kuwait and Sudan, all non-friends of the Jews so they went and um it was. This was a war that made no sense. That they will survive. It, it didn't make any sense. It was. To, I'll tell you the extent of it. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. He was going to address the nation, give them chizuk, get them back like powered up. You know, like a pump up speech. You know, like right before like uh, the coach goes in. You know, even though everybody else is like six feet tall and you're like four and a half feet, we're going to win them. You know, pump them up. And he starts crying. Now, if your coach is, you know, is gathered around and it's like the game of the season, and you know, he's like, guys. And then he starts choking up, and it's not because, like, he's so emotional that you're gonna win, because he's, you know, it's like, you guys are gonna die out there today. You know, I'm gonna miss you all terribly. You know, the, when, the, when you have the prime minister getting up to give a strong emotional speech to get the nation and starts crying, does not spell a good recipe for like, alright, yeah, let's go home, we're going we feel good about this. You know, we're, let's open up some tea, we're going it's gonna be good. It, it doesn't bring a, you know, a, a good feeling. That's what they felt at that point in time. Yet, This was known as a six-day war, because it took seven days, but Jews only work on six... No, I'm just kidding. It took six days. Uh, It took six days, and it was known as a six-day war. Not only did the Jews win this miraculous war, but this is when the first time that they gained their holiest site, the the temple, the part of Jerusalem, this is where we got it back, in the six-day war. Not only we got that, we got Hebron, we got Bethlehem, uh, uh, Bethlehem also. So not only did we win but we also got more and more land. Can you explain that? Like, it makes no sense. I'll with you some short little stories from these wars. Um, the the Six-Day War, the, Israel gave a preemptive strike. Now, let's try to put some things in, in you know, numbers over here. Israel had 196 warplanes. The surrounding you know, Arab military had over 900. And so are already outnumbered. Israel decided that they're going to do a preemptive strike against the, the Egyptian airfields, all their air force. So they went and they sent 184 planes out, leaving 12 behinds. 12 planes—that's all—and 184 planes got went out. And uh, when they went out, they had to make sure that they don't get detected by the radar. So they flew 30 meters above ground. That is very low. That is scary low, especially you go in deserts where you have to go up and down. 30 meters just not to be detected. However, the Jordanians did detect them, and they sent a message to Egypt, say, "Hey, you come—they're coming in hot. You know, get ready. You know, get your anti-aircraft missiles ready. They're coming in hot." For some odd reason, a nice coincidence, Egypt changed its programming code the day beforehand and it didn't give the, you know the Jordanians the updated code. So the Egyptians never got this information. Now, Israel went into the Egypt airspace and started bombing these uh um, you know these airplanes. Egypt had sufficient anti-aircraft ammunition to destroy it all. But for some odd reason, no the the it wasn't given like yeah, shoot them down. It just the, the order wasn't given. And in fact, the um General Ezra Weitzman, who later became the president of, you know, of, the, of the State of Israel, went and he said, and he was asked, he's like, for three hours straight, Israeli planes were flying back and forth, you know, bombing the, you know, the, the Egyptian, ear, you know, uh, earstrip. Why didn't the Egyptian go and destroy them? And this, you know, later to be a president of, you know, State of Israel, he was silent, then he lifted his head and exclaimed the finger of God. Because you cannot ex- explain it any other way. You know, the, the, Conquest of Shechem. Shechem, the, you know, the IDF saw that this was going to be a very, very difficult conquer. And one of the reasons was, is because it was a very, very large city. They had tens of thousands of, of, you know, Arabs living over there, so they put this all the way for last. Now, the Jordanians knew that this was going to be a possible, you know, way, mode of attack, so they put up a very, very strong defense, you know, on the border that's close to Israel. Israel decided they're going to go from the back door. Uh, which is always a smart idea if the front door is locked. So they went through the back door and when they get to the back door, and this was by the way, this was an eyewitness account by it was sold by um, Uri Banari. He was he goes in there and the Israeli army walks in, the IDF walks in and it you see the entire the entire area, there's kind of sitting over there, Arabs are waving their white flags, their white a white a handkerchief or white flags, and they're clapping. So he goes on and says, You know, us, you know, in our you know, Not knowing any better, we just walked in and, you know, we were like waving, you know, like the princess way, you know, we're like waving, you know, nice at everybody, like, hello, you know, everything was nice and dandy. We had no idea what was going on. Why are they giving up? The And as they went in, they saw that there were guards keeping the crowds intact. And they were like, this is weird. So one of the the IDF wanted to go and disarm the guards. Because uh, he had a thing and the and the guard, the Arab guard was like, No, what do you mean? Now? Why should I have this arm? So the Israeli shot some you know, bullets in the ear and this is where everybody like started running away. Like cockroaches when the lights turn on, every, thank you very much. Kind of, you know, everyone just scattered away. And this is when the sniper rifle, the you know, sniper shots began happening. What happened was the, the, by this time, is, you know, the IDF was already in time, and they took it over without any without any issues. The um, but what happened uh, What happened later is and when they realized why did they just let us walk in? Why did they just is they they were under the understanding that um, the Iraqi forces was supposed to be coming in from Jordan. To come in and assist them. So they saw the army. They thought this was the Iraqi forces. So they were waving a nice. And Israel was waving back. And be like, yeah, nice to see you also. And by the time they realized it, the Israel was inside already. And that said, within a short time, they were able to take off everything. They could take off everything. The, you know, one of the, the IDF had a, had a truck that was filled with ammunition. That it was next to a Jerusalem building. And it was bring it was being brought to the front lines. Now, there was a missile that landed directly on that truck. That means, I don't know if, you know, you know, like, if a missile hits that type of, you know, explosive, that, that's ridiculous, that's like fireworks, that's, like, that's, that's destruction in the nearby vicinity, everyone's going down. And for some odd reason, it was a direct hit on the truck, but it never exploded. The, the bomb never exploded. Can you explain it? Uh, maybe, maybe yes, maybe not. There was, uh, you know, so we said, like, who are these soldiers? You know, they're people, you know, the reserve. So you had one Israel, he was a cab driver. He was on duty with his friend, which was an electrician, right? Two well-trained in the you know, in the Israeli. And they came in there, and they uh, um, they had a few light weapons, a few bullets, and then they come and they see an Egyptian half-track. Uh, an Egyptian half-track, that's like a, you take like a, you morph a tank with a truck, and then you put it on with like, you know, machine guns all around the side. It was coming towards them, it was from the Egyptian side. They saw it, they froze. They're like, what are we supposed to do? I, I don't know. You know, so they just like, for not knowing anything else to do, they just pointed their guns at them. And the truck stopped. And they're pointing the guns, and the truck is stopping over there. And they, you know, they said we were waiting for them to shoot first, because you know we wanted to save our bullets. You know, we have like you know just a handful of bullets. And um, they saw that nothing was happening, so they slowly inched their way towards the truck. And when they came into the truck, they looked inside. They saw a bunch. They saw eighteen Egyptian soldiers, armed soldiers, sitting there with a petrified look on their face, like shaking. So what do you do at that point? You're like you're like uh, put your hands up. You know? It's like you know, the idea is is like, you know, that's how a guy feels if he ever wins an argument with a woman. You know, they're like completely thrown off guard they be like, Well you will know, be like you say something and the woman's like, you know what, you're right. And be like and you you have your you know, a list of other, you know, arguments there and they'll be like, well? well yeah 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 I'm right, you know, because women, as we all know in Betyakov and all these things, you teach you how to win a fight from the beginning there's no you know there's like you learn the ABCs, you learn how to break your hair, and then right after that here's how you ever win a fight against anybody ever. This is very important um uh, you know information to know they were so caught off guard that they didn't know what to do they are just like, okay, put your hands up, and they marched them out you had two a cab driver, an electrician, marching out 18 armed, you know, uh, Egyptian soldiers, and they're marching. Once they got, you know, you know, you know, uh, called for backup from the, from the IDF, they went and they asked the, you know, the, the surgeons in charge and said, how come you didn't fire at the, you know, at the soldiers, at these two soldiers? And the Egyptian surgeon said, we, tr- we really wanted to, we tried, but our whole bodies froze. We were paralyzed. We couldn't do it. I don't know why. And, you know, so you, things that you just, it can't explain. Secular newspaper, Haaretz, s- summed up the Six-Day War like this, and I'm quoting, even a non-religious person must admit this war was fought with the help from heaven. Moshe Dayan and Yitzhak Rabin, both military uh, secular leaders, they, once they got, after the Six-Day War, we got the Kotel back, the Western Wall back, they went and as customary, they put in a, you know, I, I believe it was Moshe Dayan, he went and he wrote a note and he put it inside the wall. Now, a journalist was following him, any good journalist knows, there's no such thing as privacy. And they took out the note, and wanted to read what he wrote inside this note. And he wrote out a pasuk from Tehilim. The secular Moshe Dayan wrote in a pasuk in, uh, in the Tehilim, in Psalm, in Tehilim, chapter, uh, chapter 118, verse 23. The verse is, This was from the Lord, it was wondrous in our eyes. The generals, the secular generals knew, there was no way we should have won. It makes no sense. And yet we did win. You know why? Because there's someone upstairs that's pulling some strings. A short while later, in 1973, there was known as the Yom Kippur War. This was because it was started on Purim. No, just kidding. Yom Kippur. So it started on on Yom Kippur, and it's known as the Yom Kippur War. This this war was started, um, you had 100,000 Egyptians invaded Israel from the south, and you had 1,400 Syrian tanks invaded Israel from the north. The and by the way, the Israel was, where, where is most of Israel on Yom Kippur? Either at home or in synagogue. So you're not religious, you're usually at home. You're religious, you know, uh, you're more or less in the, in the synagogue. The, and I remember when I was in Israel, and behind my yeshiva, we had a window, and you know, everything is, there is like mountains. So you, I was able to see for very far to like a main highway. And throughout the entire year, Shabbat, always there were cars going there. Yom Kippur, Nothing. Dead. Israel is dead, Yom Kippur. The, um, so this is when they, this is when they barge in from the south and the north. You know, attack on all angles. And, uh, Israel was completely caught off guard. And in fact, I heard this, but I don't, I've never seen an actual source of it. Where when they were coming in, they were like, where is everybody? You know, the Egyptian and the, and the Syrian, they're like, why is no one here? To the extent that they were like, this must be a some sort of ploy to an ambush and they started backing up or being more careful meanwhile the jews were just like you know like completely oblivious to the whole situation again i don't know if that's factual or not but that's uh, what i did uh, you know here and anyways the they came they left they came and eventually they invaded but then they you know like anybody was confused in life so the syrians came in with hundreds and hundreds of tanks Israel didn't have that many tanks. So at one point, there was three Israeli tanks against 150 Syrian tanks. That's not good odds for tank numbers, right? No no odds are good for tank numbers. You know, one against one. Nothing's ever good with a tank. Tank is like both things can destroy each other. It's just like, you know, you're fighting the same way, just now you're both like in, you know, like a Transformers type of, you know, situation. So everything is just gonna, you know, it's the same thing as hand-to-hand combat with just like more power. So... They were fighting. They're shooting against each other and uh, calling each other names you know, like the general uh, thing. Uh, and uh, then they the Israel runs out of bullets. So they radio in, "We got to go out." They got the order, "Stay put," and be like, "We don't have anything to shoot." But I don't care. You're staying put. So they had to stay put. But what do they do? They're not going to stay in one place. So they started going from back and forth. They were they're they moving the things back and forth. The um, for some reason the the Arab side decided, the Syrian side decided not to pursue it. And later I found out is is that. They saw so many tanks. It was like three tanks that were just moving directions because they didn't want to get caught. So they were like, the people have so many, so they didn't, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, attack it. And in fact, it was a Syrian that swore that he saw an army of angels surrounding those two tanks, and that's why they didn't, they didn't sh- uh, shoot against it. During the same time, there was Commander David Yemi who um, was pulling his troop from a Syrian uh, confrontation, and they got stuck in a uh, minefield. Uh, that's not a good place to get stuck. So what they did was, is that they were crawling on their bellies, and they were trying with their, with their sticks to figure out what's a mine, you know, like brushing it off to, to avoid, you know, setting any mines off. Then all of a sudden, as they're starting to crawl, there's a huge, huge windstorm that blew in. So they had nothing to do but sit still until the windstorm blows in, because they can't see anything. The windstorm went on and on, to the extent that it started blowing everything away. To the extent that 30 inches of, 30 inches of soil was blown off, all the mines were very easily seen, and you were able to just walk right out of it. Happened to be in the right place at the right time, right? I don't think so. <laughs> the there was also, there was another in the Yom Kippur war as well, there was an Israeli soldier that took an entire group of Egyptian uh, your army people captive, one soldier, Israeli soldier right, so you know like the tanned, you know like skinny, you know, smoking the cigarettes, eating the name you know, with a gun you know, he's sitting over there and he takes on this entire group and you know, like, can you imagine, it's like a little kid you know, with a stick, is fighting off a whole gang, the Crips, you know like, can you imagine that that's, you know, does it make any sense at all? And when they asked the Egyptians, so why didn't you, uh, fight against it? It's one guy. He says, you know, it was very odd because when we got closer to this one guy, we saw there were like thousands of like other soldiers that we saw. But as we got closer, these angels started, disap- these soldiers started disappearing. So we all thought that he had somewhere hiding around. So we all thought there was more. And then they asked the, this Israeli soldiers, like, you know, who was with you? He's like, I don't know, solo. Just me. Oh, you know, that's it. I'm just here alone. I didn't, you know, I didn't see anybody. So. You see here, miracle after miracle, that it just makes no sense how the Jewish nation, not only they have a land, but actually survived and actually winning wars, that makes absolutely no sense that they should be winning. Then you had the Gulf War. The Gulf War is in 1991, where Iraq threatened to use chemical weapons. And chemical weapon. you know, it's actually, I remember, because I had family in Israel, they all had to have gas masks. You all had to have gas masks and um, it, it, it was chemical warfare is, is, you know, completely, you know, above, like, everything else. And they never used the, you know, they never, never use the chemical bombs. And when they asked why, it was because usually the wind blows one way. And that would have been beneficial for the Iraqis to use that. But for some reason, during the time of the war, the wind blew the other way. So if the Iraqis would have went and destroyed, you know, the, they would have gotten, you know, a backdraft of it. How do you explain that? The, the change of the winds just when you happened to be, uh, you know, in the, you know, wanting to use chemical weapons. Iraq went and they tried and they fired 39 missiles into Israel. And Israel did not retaliate, it's a whole long story in itself, we don't have time to go into it. But out of all those missiles, you know how many casualties there were? Were so little, it's unbelievable how little casualties there was. They had different things. One missile landed in a garbage dump, didn't explode. Another missile landed a few feet away from a gas station. Also didn't explode. Then there were there were missiles that were flo- flown into the into the sea, and it wasn't like they were like okay, you know there was one guy with like a you know little thing over there be like okay move it a little bit over here. This were like targeted you know weapons. It wasn't that we're just guesstimating. Israel's in this area, just shoot there. They had targeted you know they had they had the ability to hit the targets. Why didn't they? You know you, things that you can't explain. You had also, um you know there's there actually two missiles, but no one knows where it went. It just exploded, you know, or did it. No one knows where it went. There was a, a video that was going around a long time ago, where you see, um, you know, you, you see this, this Arab. How do I know he's Arab? Because he says, Allah Akbar, every time he puts a missile inside. He goes inside, he says, Allah Akbar, closes his ears and it blows up. He goes, goes and he's shooting missiles. And then all of a sudden you see, he put in another one and then it blows up in his face. And then you see like a picture of like a lady, uh, baby laughing. Um, the, the, it's, it's, you know, when you look at, when, when you look at, these things don't make sense. Even Hamas, when they ask them, it says, you shoot so many missiles Israel, how come you're, all, before even the Iron Dome, or even before that, they're like, I don't know. We, we send it, we have, we're very good at target. Our target is very accurate. We can't, ex- they actually say it's the hand of God. How do you explain it to them, why are you trying to, you know, it's like, you know, trying to talk to a monkey, be like, you know, like, if you see the hand of God, not letting you blow up the Jews, why do you keep on trying to blow up the Jews, and saying it's in the name of God? Allah will walk about it, and then go and, and, and blow up more innocent people. The, you know, that was, you know, more in the, in the, in the recent years when you have Hamas and the whole, you know, war in terror with the tunnels. There's a lot of stories in that that we don't have the time to even go into. The miracles that happened in that war is also unbelievable. I believe they wrote a book just on that war. Just on the, on the war in Gaza. The Mark Twain in 19, in 1897. I want to quote for you something that I read before, but I feel it's very, very important and very applicable here. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian, they rose, they filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded into dream stuff. The Greeks and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. The Jews saw them all and beat them all. Now, what he, was, he, what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert, aggressive in mind, all things are immortal but the Jew." All the other forces pass, but he remains. What is what is the secret to his immorality? This is not immortality. Thank you. As soon as I said that, I was like, I should probably change that. But I was like, is anybody going to really remember? But, you know, all right. Thank you for that. Immortality, not immorality. Okay. Two very, very different things. So, thank you for that. The, um, you know, like sometimes you say something, you'd be like, okay, I said it wrong, but where should I go now? You know, all right. So, in any case, this is um, Mark Twain was not a Jew. And this is what he said of the Jewish nation. And we see this, this is in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verse 16 through 17. It says that if, if the Jewish nation doesn't follow God, will go away from God, then God will punish them. He will wage war, you know, be, be angry with them, hide the face from them, bad things will happen to them. This is what it says. And then the Torah makes it very, very clear. If we act like we're supposed to, we're going to be okay. If we don't act like we're supposed to, we're not going to be okay. The Gemara and Yuma, and as well as modern historians, they confirm... The spread of such assimilation prior to the destruction of the first and the second temple, as well as historian Lucy Davidowitz, in this writes that the Soviet jury aside, about half the pre-World War II Eastern European jury was observant. The other half was becoming more more secular. This was the this was you know they said that Berlin was Jerusalem and German was the the chosen language. The the fact that the Jews survived—you could say, well, listen, Hinduism surprised, Confucianism has also been around. you have many religions that lasted a long time. So too Israel and and uh, the Jewish nation and the Jews survived as well. There's very different. There's very very big difference. I saw a um, a very nice explanation. I don't recall where I saw this on, on on this idea. You have 100 people on the beach. They're on the beach. You have 20 people in the water. Then there comes a rip current, and it takes 20 people on swimming under the water. It drowns them for 30 minutes. After 30 minutes, it goes away. The bodies float up. 18 die, two of them survive. The fact that hundred people weren't affected by the ripcorn, not surprising at all. The fact that eighteen died, also it's unfortunate, but it's not surprising because they were underwater for thirty minutes. The fact that you had two people survive, that's what brings us the question. That's like why did they survive? The fact that Hinduism, Confucianism, all these other foreign religions, it makes sense that they survived because they lived in their own land. They were the majority nation. Why shouldn't they survive? The, brings to the question is, those two people, the Jews, that kept on going underwater, why are they still here? Can you explain anything rational, taking God aside, anything other than the supernatural, for explaining of why God is still here? Not only is God still here, but rather God is also overseeing the creation. He's playing a very, very strong role in it. The... The land of Israel, you should know, was a very, very important land in the, in the ancient times. It was, you know, this was a meeting point between Europe, Asia, and Africa. So it was, a, it was a trade route. So people wanted it. People really wanted it, and they fought for it. I think you have, you know, over 30 nations that, were, that conquered Israel. That's over the period of time. And yet, not only did they fight for it, and they went inside it, but yet no nation was able to cultivate it. We know that there was, it was a land flowing of milk and honey. But when the other nations captured it, it was nothing. It was desolate. Mark Twain visited, uh, visited Israel, or Palestine, back then, in 1867. And I'm going to quote for you what he said. A desolate land who, whose soil, though more sufficiently rich, produces only thorn, bushel, and thistle. There is such desolation one cannot even imagine that life's beauty and productivity once existed over here. The land of Israel dwells in sackcloth and in ashes. This makes a very, very odd understanding as how come the Jewish people are flourishing in Israel... You know how much, we export, not only, we're, we're exporting things. The Also, you know, the um, if I'm not mistaken, the land of Israel was, in the recent years, was the only one that produced a net gain in trees, at, at opposed to anybody else. They had a net gain, there were more trees planted in Israel as opposed to anyone, which means they didn't lose trees, they actually gained trees in it. And what's interesting is that it's a desert, so there's like, a, you know, two factors on this. You know, we see in Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 8, there's a land of flowing of milk and honey. From the time of Josephus, even, which was, you know, over, you know, 1300 years after, you know, the Torah, Matan Torah, the land was still flowing with milk and honey. This was still, this was still uh, um, going on. I'm sorry, we're a little bit late. We're going to, we have a little bit more. But if anybody needs to leave, I don't feel bad. Feel, you know, free to, you know, get out, leave. It's fine, it's okay. More than happy if you stay, but, you know, by all means. So, I want to finish up over here. One, then it says... In Leviticus chapter 26 verse 32, it's, the, the, you know, it says in the Torah, so devastated will I leave the land, your land will remain desolate and your city in ruins. That's what it says in the Torah. And it just happened. A land that was flowing with milk and honey, the Jews leave, all of a sudden it's ruins. The Jews come back, all of a sudden it's back again. Can you explain that? It's, we have technology that they didn't have. We use, we use the same technology. The, it skips us off it's late. The, there's a story that's told of King Louis, Louis, of uh, France. He went to a mathematician and a Catholic philosopher the name of Pascal. I'm sure some of you have heard him. The, asked him to prove the supernatural in just two words. Prove me the supernatural in two words. You know what he said? The Jews. Those two words are the Jews. Prove the supernatural is the Jews. You know, when you ask people how many Jews are there in the world, ask somebody who doesn't know anything about Jews, you ask them how many Jews are there in the world. Um, they're going to give you the craziest answers. You know. Five billion. You know, you know, 500 million, a billion, um, you know, all that. And when you tell them, no, it's about 14 million. They're like, no, it's not possible. They're like, no, no, we're really only 14 million. He says, but you guys are always in the paper. Like, how do you explain that? So, because like, we own it. That's why we're always in it. <laughs> so, um, but, the, you know, when you think about it, why are we? Why do we make such a long, you know, um, you know, standing? We're always in the papers. We're always making I thing. By the way, it's not true. We don't own the media. That's what we want people to think. So, um, the... <laughs> now, no one knows what's true. Okay, so... Not only did the Jews survive, but they actually contributed a significant amount to society. The Jews, which make 0.2%, roughly, they, of the population, has contributed a significant amount. Recent stats shows that 23% of all Nobel Prizes from 1901 to 2017 were Jews. They were Jewish recipients. And we look over here. Chemistry had 36 prize winners that were Jews. 20% of the world total. I'm not going to say how much it is. I'm just going to tell you what the percentage of the, lo- of the world total are Jews. Economics, 39%. Literature, 13%. Peace, 9%. Physics, 26%. Physiology or medicine, 27% of the world population. We're tiny. We're not even a percent. And we, accom- we accomplish more than, we're, we're a th- more than, almost a fourth of all Nobel Prize winners are, 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 are Jews. Besides that, there's, I have here a list of things, but due to the time I can't, I, we don't have the time to go in there. We have, the Jews have one, one of the, the greatest creators in, uh, in history, that especially in medical and scientific advances, there's an estimated 2.8 billion lives saved thanks to Jews. Fritz Haber, who, you know, invented the synthetic fertilizer, saved about 1.3 billion lives. Carl Landsteiner. The, and Richard Lowentz on They invented the blood transfusion. You have Abel Wolman, the chlor, chlorination of the drinking uh, uh, water. You have Samuel Katz, measles vaccine, certainness chain, penicillin, David Sacha, the um, oral rehydration therapy for cholera. You have um, Alfred Summer vitamin A therapy, Baruch Blum, Bloomberg, Hepat- I couldn't get more Jewish than that, Baruch Bloomberg, and hepatitis B vaccine, Jacob Gershon Cohen, mammogram, Albert Sabine, Polio vaccine, Rachel Schneerson, the hip vaccine for bacterial meningitis, Brian Drucker, the Gleevec medication, which is an anti leukemia drug, and you have Henry Heimlich, which invented the Heimlich remover, the Heimlich remover, Heimlich maneuver or remover as well. You have here all these, that's why, for people that want to boycott Israel, please, please do. Yeah. Make sure, make sure, you know, you choke, do not use a high, make sure, and then say, no, you don't want to, don't use that. Right. your finger also brings down a bunch of other interesting things. The cell phone, which we view today as a drug, and indispensable from society, this was developed in the Israeli uh, branch of Motorola. Windows operating system, most of these operating systems was developed by Microsoft Israel. Pentium MMX chip was designed at Intel in Israel. The voicemail technology was developed also in Israel. Four young Israelis developed the technology of AOL Instant Messenger in 1996. I actually remember this, uh, you know, this different thing. According to the industry officials, Israel has the highest, um, you, know, um, you know, strongest airborne security. And when people need to train for something, they go to Israel to train for that. Israel has a, over a hundred billion dollar economy that is larger than all its immediate neighbors combined. And we don't do oil. It's important to do that also. Israel has the highest ratio of university degrees to the populations of the world. Israel also produces more scientific papers per capita than any other nation by a large margin. Israel is ranked number two in the world for venture capital funds, right behind the United States. On a, on a per capita basis, Israel has the largest number of biotech startups. Israel also has, is the world's second highest per capita of new books, of producing new books. Israel is the only country in the world, this is what I said before, which entered the 21st century with a net gain of trees. Israel has more museums per capita than any other country. The disgusting Israel. So far, it's terrible, right? The, you know, uh, what does UN say? We're we're violating all these uh, you know r- laws. Yeah, oh, terrible. Israel leads the world in the number of scientists in the workforce with 145 per, per ten thousand people. So every ten thousand people, you have about 145 scientists. U.S. has 85 per ten thousand. Japan has 70, and Germany has less than 60. Which means we lead almost everybody else, almost double of what we produce in, sci- in the scientific uh, you know world in the in, the, in specifically in scientists. Israel Israeli scientist was the first fully computerized no radiation diagnostic instrument for breast cancer. Israel company also developed a um, a computerized system that you'd be able to check when you give. There's about seven thousand deaths in America alone that are attributed to wrongful medication in hospitalization. When they go into hospital, they give wrong medication and they die from that. Israel developed technology to prevent that from happening. To prevent uh, that. So please, if you want to boycott Israel, please make sure to take wrong medications. Um, <laughs> Israel also was the first, this is something so cool, the, the first ingestible video camera. So you take a pill, and it takes pictures as it goes through your colon. No more of that. This was invented by, uh, by Israel. There was many, many other things. We all can't forget. Ways, yeah. you know. There it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's numerous, numerous things that were invented by Israel. The inhumane Israel, which is, I don't know how it gets away with all that it does. John Adams, the second president, the American president, said I will insist that the Hebrews have contributed more to the civilized men than any other nation. If I were an atheist, says John Adams, I would still believe that faith had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilized nations. Now, if we are so small a number and we're so hated, how can we make an impact? And in fact, in Isaiah 42, chapter 42, verse 6, it says that we are going to be a light unto the nations. How and why? We are hated by everybody. We get prosecuted. We get pushed out. We're in exile. Nothing goes according to plan. And yet, not only that, but we provide for the nations. We actually give. We actually give more, uh, back. Mark Twain wrote again. Oh, wow. I didn't realize we quote Mark Twain a lot over here. He's, uh, you know, because all these things was an, this was an evolution. This is one thing that you could say this, uh, you know, this, this class, uh, you know, went through evolution, uh, because it started off as just a few pages and, uh, then it grew. The Mark Twain wrote like this. He is about the Jew. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people. And his commercial importance is out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. He contributes to the world's greatest, in, in the world's list of greatest names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and other, uh, you know, abstruse uh, uh, learning. Not only do we survive, but we have a ability to survive. We also... Provided a, a moral and ethical standing for the, for the world. Before the Jews came in, you know, killing infants was morally correct, if you wanted to. Um, this was okay. This, everything changed. The Jewish people brought in a, an idea of respect of life, peace, equality, justice, love of the neighbor, social. This, you can't say, well, oh, it was only the Jews, because everybody said that, but the Jews were the first one to actually put it into, uh, it put it into practice. The, and it's very interesting, because the Western world, where the Jews were influenced by, were able to influence, is very different than the parts of the world where the Jews were not able to be influenced by, and you notice they, they deal very differently in in uh, in the society. You have the Western world is the more morally uh, you can say world. You go to the, some African tribes where you know they still given you know you know certain sacrifices. Nigeria does female circumcision on day seven. There you go. That's you know, Boker You guys are not Nigerian, huh. Right. Eh? Mm-hmm. It's it's, ter- it's 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 you know it's it's sad it's disgusting it's terrible but they think this is this is a, this is a, you know this is humane this is okay this is important the Muslim ones the Egypt those are we can be also Muslim okay anyways um, but Egypt also. in um, <laughs> put it this also the the United Nations. Um, have on their wall. Here's here's a here here's a picture of of United Nations. You know what it says on the United Nations? A verse on Isaiah. You can't see it, I uh, don't know, whatever. It's, it's here. You know, just trust me, I can, you can show it, look at it afterwards. They say, it's, it's printed in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. It says, and they shall beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. N- nations shall not lift up the sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. Basically, you know, try to unite everybody to avoid war. Doing an excellent job. Um, the Wall Street Journal, went and uh, in you know they wanted to they ran a series on the, which three individuals in their view had the greatest impact in the 20th century. You know which which are the three people that they chose in the entire world that has the greatest impact in the 20th century? Sigmund Freud, Albert Einstein and Karl Marx. All Jews. All the fact the probability of all them being Jews are so low and yet not only are we here but we are strong we are, you know, the, the Jewish religion is, is as strong as ever. It, you know, it's, you know, needs, you know, it's, it's, getting, it's getting better. Uh, I can't say strong as ever because that's, that's incorrect. It was, it was at one point it was much, uh, you know, better. But Bokushem, we're getting stronger. There's a big baal Shuba movement. There's a big, you know, uh, you know, you know, move, movement of getting closer to God. We are not only here beyond any reasonable reason. We should not be here. We should not be existing today. And not only do we exist, we are talking about existing and we contribute to the society. Can you explain that in any other way? Other, other fact that there's something supernatural going on over here. There is a reason why we're still here. There is a reason. There's also a reason why we, we're we're the target of anti-Semitism. We are supposed to. Do, we have we have obligations to do in this world, and that is through the Torah. There's two ways to do it. There's a good cop, bad cop. You're either going to do it willingly, or I'm going to make you do it not willingly. But it's going to happen at the end of the day. When the Jews went to Germany, they decided, okay, maybe to avoid anti-Semitism, let's become German, and they became German. But what did the German say? You're not German. You're a Jew, and as a Jew, you need to die. So no matter whatever we try, it's never going to work. The only thing that we need to do is follow the Torah and follow the path of Hashem. That is the only answer to get out of this whole sticky situation, all the anti-Semitism, everything that we need to deal, that is the only way to deal with it. We learn from here two things, and then we'll open up for questions. Number one is the fact that the Torah was able to predict this. The Torah was able to predict a nation, you're not going to be large but you're, not, you're never going to die out you're going to still always exist you're going to contribute you're going to be a land unto the nations and you are never going to be destroyed and you're going to be exiled from place to place to place all a recipe for the disaster everything conflicting with each other and yet we see that everything came exactly as it's written in the, in the Torah this is another proof that you have over here that not only the Torah was written by no human but rather by a divine being but that divine being had the power to foresee the future it's not bound by time any questions? Yeah. go ahead don't be did, did Amalek hate us or did they just want to start up with us? You no, know, they they had a very strong... Amalek had a very strong hatred. There's no reason for them to fight against us at one point. They just wanted to, you know, destroy us. Most people that want to destroy us, there's very little reason. Arabs need more land? Really? Really? You need to go be in Israel? You have, what is it, 12,000 times more land in entire nearby Arab regions? You need that little, you know, size smaller than New Jersey? For, to, for what? For the Western world? You know, you don't even... Whatever, yeah. Let's not get into... <laughs> also, anti-semitism also technically for Muslim, but no one uses it for? It's coined technically because it's from the same region, but it's coined by... specifically for Jews. Anti-semitism was, was coined specifically for Jews. Okay. That's just called a racist, if you're against Muslim. Yeah? Mostly um, you said that the Jews never be destroyed and the least small the will be where is that one long passage? It's well there's many different uh, um ones of them. You had over here the Jews will remain few, it's in Devarim, chapter four verse uh, twenty seven. So it says this is in the same this is in the same passage." and the Shem will scatter you among the people and you will remain few amongst the nation. In Malachi says that it will never be destroyed. In the third chapter of Malachi. Um so you have over here, you know, in one passage, even says you're gonna remain few, which means you're gonna remain, but you're gonna be scattered. Which makes absolutely, you know, no sense if you were thinking, uh, let's me produce this fake religion, let's do it this way. Any other questions? Besides off camera, any questions on camera? No? Going once, going twice? up. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.